This morning, we are going to finish a series we've been in called On the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is just an amazingly dense, rich, important teaching. In fact, it can be said it's the most important talk in history if you look at the way in which it has impacted societies and cultures. So, that, uh, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to wrap this up, the Sermon on the Mount. And Pastor Josh gave me this incredibly rich chunk of teaching to teach through this morning. I'm excited. Uh, we have a lot to dig into this morning, so let's go. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, as I said, an amazing, amazing text. And it starts off with these tender blessings. It introduces life in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are persecuted, those who are meek. See, it starts off so hopeful. It starts off so kind. And then Jesus moves into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is all about this incredible vision that Jesus has. This vision, this vision of this, this life of grandeur, this incredibly morally brilliant life. Jesus shows that there's a depth to the law, the Old Testament law. And so he goes and he says, you've heard it said you shouldn't have explicit sexual affairs, but I say don't even treat people like furniture you're arranging within the corners of your mind. You've heard it said not to be filled with murderous violence, but I say don't even harbor bitterness. Love your enemies. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should stick to what you're legally bound to, but I say, be a person of your word so people don't need to make you legally bound. Jesus goes in and says, listen, I'm calling you. We need to be people who do what is right when no one is watching. Be people who, who instead of storing up things, are generous. People who treat people the way you would like to be treated. People who live these lives with depth, with integrity, whose li- who have this deep life of prayer. And then Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends it in a way you wouldn't think. He doesn't end it with a zinger. He doesn't end it with a double thumbs up. You've got this. Go for it. See, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in a very strange, ominous way. These series of warnings. In fact, it ends with this story about these two houses. And, and the storm comes, and, the, and then it focuses in on the house that's not going to make it. And it ends with, the, it's, like a, it's like a dark indie film where it ends with this house that's groaning and moaning under the creaking and, and just the, the storm. And then it finally ends with, and it collapsed. And then this credits roll, and you're like, whoa, Jesus, okay. Wow. What is Jesus doing? Why does he end this, this sermon that, that is so kind and so sweet at the beginning, that, that is so moving, that has such interest and depth with so many warnings and darkness? See, Jesus here is ending like he's ending because like any good preacher, he is calling for commitment. He's calling his audience to wake up. He's saying, my teaching is not just meant to be praised, it's meant to be practiced. See, my teaching is not just there in order to be admired, but to be administrated in your life. Not just to be commended, but carried out. See, we can be moved by the Beatitudes. We can be struck with the grandeur of Jesus' moral vision. And we can love the Sermon on the Mount. But the problem is, is that we can hear it, and it can go in one ear and out the other. And so Jesus is bringing his message home. He's bringing his message home. And Jesus is warning his listeners in the strongest of all language You must not only hear my words, you must do them because your life depends upon it. Jesus is moving towards his audience and he is waking them up because he's very, very concerned for them. 
Now, of all people, we, as we read these words, should be concerned. Because we live in an information age. We live in an age in which every day we're barraged, right, with the news. And the news can, and it's like, oh, yeah, oh, ah, whoa, ah, right, okay, now to work. And we get inured to listening to information, to hearing things in a way in which there is no uh, meaningful action required. Uh, Neil Postman, who was a professor at New York University, talks about what he calls the information to action ratio, that, that with, as our information doubles and doubles and doubles and we get more and more information, we get barrage of information, we become less and less capable of actually knowing how to respond to information. So Jesus' ending to the Sermon on the Mount should cause all of us today to be all the more cautious. See, he offers a series of troubling pictures aimed at waking up his audience to the danger of doing exactly the very thing that we're accustomed to doing. What is that? Having a superficial relationship to what we hear. You know, Jesus Christ never said anything in order just to give us some nice facts, in order just to inform us. Jesus Christ never said anything just so that it would be something that we thought, oh, wow, cool. And Jesus is warning us that we need to have his words set loose in our lives and our lives depend on it. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. Here's your map. We're gonna look at these three contrasting pictures that Jesus gives us. Um, each one of them contrasts the real from the fake, okay? Uh, the authentic from the foe. We have, Jesus talks about two kinds of gates in verses 13 to 14. Then he talks about two kinds of prophets in verses 15 to 20. And then he ends with two kinds of Christians in verses 21 to 23. And, and these three pictures press an increasingly closer to home image. The first is uh, the two kinds of gates. And this is simply a contrast between those who are inside and outside uh, those who are on the narrow road uh, of life that Jesus gives and those who are on the road to death and loss. The second, the two kinds of prophets, concerns outsiders who pretend to be insiders. And then the third, two kinds of Christians, looks at those who think they are insiders but are not. And the third one is really quite disturbing. And again, these all are Jesus making it very personal. With each one of these warnings, Jesus is asking us a question, and here is the question. Where do you stand with me? Where do you stand with me? Where do you stand with my word? There's no way to sweeten this. I thought, how can I make this a funny sermon? How can I make this a charming sermon? Look at the text is heavy. And I'm not gonna do something that is gonna derail us from Jesus' very sobering words. Jesus starts out with two kinds of gates in verses 13 to 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus here is equating himself and his teaching with a hados. The word is hados in Greek. It means a way. He's saying that he alone offers the way to life, that all other ways are dead ends. He's saying, although he is one man, he is still the one true pulis, which means a gate. He's not merely a religious teacher among religious teachers. 
His teaching is not merely one philosophy to examine and consider. He's saying he is the exclusive way to life. And if that creates tension within you, it simply is because we are a part of the modern world. And in our modern world, which Jesus here is on a collision course with, the idea that somebody has a corner on the truth is offensive. And we just need to name that. We need to, act, we need to be realistic about that. Jesus' words don't only offend people that are out there, they offend us, right? It rubs against us. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But Jesus was hard-hitting. Jesus is very black and white on this. Jesus is very clear. In John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is not saying that I am a way, but the way. I'm not a gate. I'm the gate. He's being as blunt as he can. Jesus here is on a collision course. He's on a collision course with modern thinking that's developed in the last 150 years. Ludwig uh, Fierenbach wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity. This is a great book that kind of symbolizes where we've been. And the argument in The Essence of Christianity is what Christianity is in its essence is what it has in common with all other religions. And this idea has been put forward a number of different ways. And the assumption here is that all religions are pretty much the same. They all are paths to the divine. They all are seeking salvation. Uh, you know, as, as, as it goes, you know, there's just many roads up to the hill. There's lots of paths, and they're all leading to God. Um, now, it used to be before, uh, you know, the modern knowledge classes began introducing this idea that if you had a Jew and a Muslim who said, you know, God can never become man, and you had a Hindu and a Buddhist who said, God becomes man every day, and you had a Christian who said, God has, has become man, but only once, in and through Jesus Christ, they would all look at each other and say, well, we all can't be right. But then the knowledge classes start saying, no, actually, at your core, you're all giving the same basic message. There are many roads to God, so it doesn't really matter what path you choose as long as you're sincere in the path you choose. And this idea has seeped so deeply into our psyche that on the street level, if you actually tell somebody that you believe that your religious claims are the correct perspective, people are incensed. I, on a regular basis, people will say like, do you really believe that your religious views are really, really true? And I said, yeah, I really believe my beliefs. I'm not sure why that's shocking to you that I believe my beliefs. Apparently, you believe your beliefs too, right? I mean, you have to have these kind of conversations. It's just strange. But it, 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 people are incensed. They say, how intolerant, how bigoted. But note that in saying this, the people that are claiming that you are a bigot are doing the very same thing that they're saying you can't do. See, the relatives are the pluralists on the street often don't realize they have their own view of religion. They feel they are just being open-minded or recognizing the plurality that exists or celebrating diversity, but the reality is that they have a position and the position is that all roads lead to God, that religion ultimately has certain kinds of beliefs. And if you disagree with them, they become very angry. Why? Because they believe their beliefs. And they're angry at you for believing your beliefs. It's really quite amazing. 
See, all that's being proven is what Jesus is saying right here in the text. Jesus is saying there is no neutrality. There, everybody has views. Everybody has views. You, every, no one's sitting at the crossroads. Everybody has views. He's getting very personal. Jesus is just calling out, and he's calling his audience to recognize their views and to commit to those. Um, again, if there's anything we can't do in our late modern world, it's claim too strongly that we have intellectual commitments. This is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the fragilization of the modern period. Given so many options, we feel it's inauthentic to commit to just one, but Jesus says quite the opposite. Jesus here says that by avoiding commitment, we, in, we actually commit to something by default. Rejecting the narrow road means taking the broad road, Jesus says. There's no way out. You are making commitment. Every day, everybody we meet is heading down one of two paths, Jesus says. Now listen carefully to what Jesus says. He says, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are few. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it, uh, I'm sorry, those who find it are few, not many. The broad road, what is the broad road? Well, the broad road has no entrance requirements. It's where you go when you try to keep your options open. It's what comes natural. It's where you put off, when you put off following Jesus and put into practice his teaching because you want to think about things a little bit longer, because you're a busy stay-at-home mom, because you're in graduate school, Jesus says you put yourself on the broad road. See, the broad road is the path of least resistance. It's where you do whatever you want. It's the easy way, the spacious way. That is, that is the key characteristic of the broad road. It's spacious. There's plenty of room. You can play with your options. You can think for yourself. You can play around, whatever. That's the broad road. The narrow road is very different. I like the King James. The King James says straight is the road. And it's using straight in the old sense of the word. We no longer use straight in this sense. It's the only word we have that actually still uses it is the word straight jacket. When you think of a straight jacket, what do you think? Confining, tight, difficult, cramped. Hey, walking around with a straight jacket does not come natural, all right? It means something you have to intentionally pursue. There are things that you can't bring with you on the straight road, and it's uncomfortable. So Jesus is saying that you can just brush off my teaching. You can keep your options open. You can live and say, well, that's one philosophy that, you know, I'll take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little, you know, who knows? And Jesus is saying, if you do that, you are making the biggest mistake of your life. And we go, that just seems crazy. But is it really crazy? Is it really crazy? You know, we know other areas of life where true vitality, to really be able to do something, requires incredible narrow focus. If you want to be a doctor, I've got some news for you. Your life is going to become very narrow. You're going to spend hours a day studying, right? If you want to be a world-class musician, you're looking at eight to 10 hours a day. Just your life is over, man. You are going to be with your instrument. You're going to be playing. And if you want to be an Olympic athlete, guess what? Narrow is the road, right? You have to make some commitments, and it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to feel like a straitjacket. 
but you will never be able to have the freedom to perform in surgery, to be a world-class musician, to be able to do the kind of athletic things that you dream of doing unless you take that narrow road. And Jesus is coming and saying, this is the way the universe is, and it's all the more important when it comes to life itself. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just giving us a prescription for how to become a doctor or a musician or an athlete. Jesus is giving us the prescription for how to live life well, to find the freedom of life, the joy to be able to live life in a way that is described as, in the way it was meant to be lived. It's going to be hard, but in the end, it leads to tremendous freedom. Now, no one ever drifted into becoming a brain surgeon. No one ever dilly-dallied and woke up and said, oh my gosh, I'm playing, you know, first violin for the New York Symphony. What happened? <laughs> I kept my options open. No one ever did that, right? Jesus is saying, listen, I came not just to show you the pathway to be a physician or a musician or athlete. I want you to know the path to life. And yes, it's narrow. And a lot of people are going to say, no, thank you. Many are on that broad road. And this alarms us. And it's meant to alarm us. Jesus is, is he's a preacher. He's bringing it home. And he wants his audience to say, am I on that road? Have I really taken the narrow path that Jesus has given me? If I told you guys there's a cop outside and I think he's going to ticket a car, you'd be like, nah, probably not me. Probably someone else. If I said, you know, the police are out there and they're ticketing 80 to 90% of the cars, this place would empty out. <laughs> right? Jesus is doing the same. He's like, think about this. Don't think just by virtue of the fact that you, that somehow you, it's not you. It can be you. If the danger with the two kinds of gates is you can miss the path of life entirely, the next picture warns us that we can be led off the path. So Jesus moves from talking about two kinds of gates to two kinds of prophets. He says this in verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So... Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears what kind of fruit, class? Bad fruit. Thank you. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you recognize them by their fruits. In this next contrasting picture, Jesus warns us that not everyone who claims to be a spiritual luminary, who claims to speak on behalf of God, is actually someone you can trust. And believe me, I recognize that there's something ironic about me saying that, right? I mean, that's what I'm doing right here, okay? But I want to encourage you, don't listen to me. See what Jesus says, right? Go back to the source. Now, the Greek here is very descript, okay? I never use the Greek, but here's the Greek. The Greek is really cool. Whoa, what is that? It's Greek to you, I know. It's Greek to me too. Jesus says, prosachete apopro pseudoprofiton. Pseudoprofiton. Do you hear it? Pseudo-prophet. When you say somebody is pseudo, what does it mean? It means like they kind of are and they're kind of not. Right? Something's off kilter. It's not the real thing. Right? Jesus here is saying, beware. Prosachete. Beware. Be on the lookout. Watch out. 
Keep your radar up. It's going to happen. They're coming. What for? Who's the nasty guy? The pseudo-prophet. The pseudo-prophet. This is someone who's going to come and speak with authority about me and about God and about what it means to follow God, and they are off. Interesting. So Jesus here, in using the word prophet, is actually tapping into a long tradition. It starts with the Old Testament. Israel had prophets. Um, uh, you know, they had lots of books in the Bible are actually named after the prophets that Israel had. We actually have some stained glass windows here. We've got Amos, that's one of the prophets. We've got Hosea, that's another prophet. We've got Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? Two minor prophets, two major prophets. By the way, minor and major, that's just, it's totally made up. That's not a Bible thing. It's just meant like, well, those are smaller books, so they're minor. That's, those are bigger books, those are major, okay? They're all majors, okay? They're all God's word, all right? But uh, prophets, who were prophets? Well, prophets were people that, that God sent to address his, 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 uh, his people. Um, and so the pro- pro- word prophet most often referred in the Old Testament to those who the God of Israel had sent to speak to his people. Um, now, there, um, there were other prophets of other religions in the Old Testament, the prophets of Baal, um, but it most commonly refers to those who um, they were speaking to God's people on God's behalf. But there were people that would come to speak to God's people in the Old Testament who, though it seemed like they were sent from God, what they were saying was not right, and they were what Jesus would call pseudo-prophetan. In Jeremiah, we read this. Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Now, six times Jesus uses this word, prosechete, or beware, or look out, or watch out. And each time it's used in the book of Matthew, each time it's used in the book of Matthew, Matthew 6, 1, 7, 15, 10, 1, and 6, 3, 16, 3, um, it's referring to a spiritual leader who appears pious, but actually is not lining up with what God requires. 6, 1, Jesus says, beware of the hypocrites, those Pharisees. 7, 15, we have the false prophets. And 10, 1, the religious leaders who drag the followers, Jesus' apprentices, into court are, are we are to w- be aware of. And then in 16, uh, chapter 16, three times he talks about the teaching of the Pharisees. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. And so Jesus here takes this word, which used to be very distinct, and he applies it here to, in a very wide word, way to cover anyone who falsely claims to set forth the way of God. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. And then he goes a little farther, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Why the sheep's clothing? Well, you see a sheep, what do you think? Run, it's a sheep! Aw, it's a sheep. So sweet, so cute. Come here, sheepy. Come here, sheepy. Aw. Sheep is oftentimes used to talk about God's people. So these are people that are showing up and they've got the Christian ease down. They're saying very Christian things. They seem very harmless, right? But Jesus says, watch out, they're ravenous wolves. Their teaching will tear you apart. And why? Because their real intent is to further their own interests at your spiritual expense. They have not come to feed the sheep. 
They've come to feed on the sheep. It's a very important difference. I like how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or another. Well, how did these false prophets get so popular? Well, the one reason they're so popular, there's lots of reasons, but one reason they're so popular is because they tell us what we want to hear. See, they come to tell us that the narrow road of Jesus is not that narrow. That the hard way, taking up your cross to follow Christ, is not that hard. It really isn't. Second um, Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Not their own philosophies, their own passions. See, the, fault, the mark of the false prophet is it's someone that is going to say, it's okay, you can be a Christian and keep doing whatever your pet thing is you want to do. They want to get you off the narrow road. Now, in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to portray a false prophet, this is what you would, you would do. Isn't this great? These are two illuminated uh, manuscripts. One's from the 11th century, one's from the 14th century. You would portray people with frogs coming out of their mouth. That is just strange, isn't it? That is a very strange thing. The inspiration behind this was Revelation 16, 13, which talks about a false prophet who had a frog like an unclean spirit coming out of its mouth. Now, at first you think, that, you know, this is just one more reason why, you know, it was, the, it was the dark ages. These people were crazy. But there's a lot of things I like about this. Number one, it's not because I like frogs, by the way, okay? But number one, I like that it's shocking, Like, if you saw someone walking down the street with that, you'd be like, holy cow, what's coming out of your mouth, dude? That's just weird, right? There's something off about that. You got a frog coming out of your mouth. See, if you know the teaching of Jesus backwards and forwards and someone says something that is off, you should be able to go like, hey, that's off. That's weird. There's a frog coming out of your mouth, dude. Okay. But why the frog? Well, the frog is really symbolic. You know, in the story of the showdown between Moses and the magicians of Pharaoh, Moses, see, brings a curse down and frogs come out of the Nile and invade Egypt. But then the magicians come and they mimic. But the source is not the same. And so false prophets are really good at mimicking through their words what Jesus is teaching. But remember, the source is not the same. Okay? False prophets also have frogs that come in their mouth because Leviticus tells us that uh, frogs are an unclean animal, right? This is part of one of the restrictive holiness codes in Leviticus 11, 9 to 12. Frogs represent uncleanness. Any aquatic animal without scales was not to be eaten. And so this reminds us that there's going to be some, something morally off, okay? There's something, there's something like, that just seems a little bit morally off, That's not direct to me on the narrow path that Jesus calls me to. Um, Now today, if you're looking for a false prophet, you don't need to go looking around for a person with a frog coming out of their mouth, you know, with a t-shirt that says FP or something like that, right? No. Okay. Today, false prophets are far more appealing, and they come by names such as pastor, professor, blogger, best-selling author, psychologist, podcaster, 
They're oftentimes considered luminaries. They're often very interesting. They're often very insightful. They're often very educated. They're often someone who you think, like, this person really understands how life works. But the one thing they always have in common, the one thing they always have in common is there's someone who will tell you that the hard sayings of Jesus are not that hard and that the narrow way of Jesus is not that narrow. Jesus says the appeal, regardless of the appeal, the test is simple. Pay attention to their lives. Are they on the narrow road of following Jesus? Pay attention to their lives. Do they live lives that inspire you to follow Jesus more closely? Is that the fruit that you see? Or do they want to take you off the narrow road? Let's review Jesus' warnings. We can miss the path altogether. This is the danger from around us, the danger of getting sucked up with the crowd. Uh, We can be sucked into broad-minded thinking, which says Jesus is not the path. He's simply an optional path. We can be led off the path. This is the danger from above us, the danger of the false luminary, who sounds like they're teaching you the path, but they really are leading you off the path. And finally, and arguably most insidious, there is the danger from within us. We can be self-deceived about being on the path. And this ends with the final warning Jesus is talking about two different kinds of Christians. This is verses 21 to 23. 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We've seen Jesus make distinctions between true and false gates, and between true and false prophets, but now he's going to distinguish between true and false Christians. And here Jesus is saying, there are a lot of people who say they're Christians, who call Jesus Lord, but they are not authentic Christians. Now this is really, this is some of the most troubling, this might be one of the most troubling passages in the Bible. See, Jesus is saying that there can be two people sitting next to each other in church. You know, greet each other with that nice Christian greeting. Good morning. Good morning. And one of them one day will stand before Jesus, and Jesus will say, welcome into my kingdom, beloved of the Father. And one, Jesus is going to look at them and say, I don't even know you. Get out of my face. This should wake us up. This should cause us to say, wow. Even more disturbing is when you look at the credentials of these inauthentic Christians. I mean, these seem like dream church members. I'd want to run through the membership course as quick as we could, you know? Look at their credentials. They, they passed the doctrinal test. Lord, Lord. See, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek Septuagint, the name for God is Lord. So they've got solid theology. They call Jesus Lord. Matter of fact, they're very Christocentric. Three times they say, in your name. They're all about Jesus. They pass the doctrinal test. They pass the emotional test. Note that they repeat the name Lord. Lord, Lord. In the Bible, doubling a name signifies a certain relational, emotional intimacy with someone. You see, when Jesus looked over Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. See the emotional investment? 
when, when, uh, when David lost his son Absalom, he said, Absalom, Absalom. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Eli, Eli. See, that emotional. So, so these people pass the emotional tests. They have a certain relational intensity. These are people that will cry in church. These are people that, that, that when they're worshiping, their hands are up. They're emotionally invested. They're moved by the songs. They pass the emotional test. And then they pass the service test with flying colors. They're prophesying, cast out demons, doing mighty works. I mean, these are active Christians. They're not just sitting around. They're not just pew sitters. You know, they're not just missing a Sunday here or there. These people are active. They're doing it. They go through the resume. Lord didn't, you know, listen to the resume. They're teaching, they're healing, they're praying, miracles are happening, you know, and, and yet Jesus says to these people, get out of my face. This is troubling. Two Christians, both orthodox in doctrine, both emotionally evolved, both active in surface. You know, just like those two houses, you had two houses at the end, they, they look the same. One is, is, is destined for destruction. To one, Jesus says, welcome to my kingdom. And then one says, I never knew you. What's the point? What's the logic? What is Jesus saying here? In philosophy, you call this a necessary but not sufficient condition. See, these traits are all good traits. You need to pass the doctrinal test. You need to be, pass the emotional test. If what Jesus did for you doesn't move you, you're probably not a Christian. It needs to, you need to be like, wow, you're not getting it if it's not moving you. You should, be, you should be doing something about what you've heard. When you've understood what Jesus did for you, it's gonna move you to service. See, these, these are things that are good, but they still lack something. What do they lack? What does Jesus say? Depart from me, ye who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. That word in the Greek is literally you anomians. Namos means law. You who disregard the commands that I've given you, the things I've told you to do. You who disregard my teaching. They called him Lord, but they rejected the narrow way he called them to. See, they wanted to follow Jesus, but they wanted to follow Jesus on their terms. The narrow way means there are things we cannot take with us. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, there are things you cannot take with you. You cannot take grudges. If you walked in this morning with a grudge towards somebody, I got news for you. You cannot take that with you to the kingdom of God. Jesus says that if anybody will not forgive someone else. Your heavenly Father will not forgive you. You cannot take grudges with you. Maybe you do not want to lay down your treasures, your time, your talent at Jesus' feet. Maybe that's you. You know, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. On my narrow road, there's only one master, and I am him, and I call the shots. They wanted to follow Jesus, but they wanted to call the shots. They wanted to ultimately be in charge of the rules. They would determine at the last resort what would and would not happen with their lives. They never surrendered their will. They wanted an intellectually satisfying faith. They wanted an emotionally gratifying faith. They wanted a socially redemptive faith. But they didn't want to be in a position where they did not decide for themselves 
whether or not they would tell the truth or whether they'd forgive or who per, what person they would sleep with or wouldn't sleep with, they needed to maintain control of that. They were not on the narrow road. They couldn't keep their clammy hands off their own lives. But they're antinomian in another sense. There's another sense in which they are anomian. Look at what they say in that last day. What did they say? But Jesus, we did this and we did that. We did all this stuff. And Jesus says, not good enough. You haven't fulfilled the law. You haven't walked the narrow road good enough. What does Jesus want? For crying out loud, what does Jesus want? There's only one who's ever walked the narrow road that Jesus gives us perfectly. There's only one. There's only one who's never treated people like furniture to range in the corner of the mind. There's only one who has loved his enemies perfectly. There's only one who's loved his neighbors as himself perfectly. There's only one who's lived a life of radical, absolute generosity. There's only one who did right all the time, even when no one was looking. And that was Jesus. They were building the foundation of their lives on themselves and on their works. They retained control of their lives, and they, at the end of the day, were trusting in themselves. See, you can't separate the lordship of Jesus from the grace of Jesus. If Jesus is not Lord, he's not powerful enough to save. They called him Lord, but they weren't recognizing his power to save. They trusted in themselves. If he's powerful enough to save us, he deserves preeminence in every area of our lives. This is the narrow way of Jesus. This is why this narrow way is filled with such joy. Because when you are on the narrow way, you know who your Savior is. You know that you'll never fulfill the narrow way perfectly, but you know somebody already has, and so of glad, self-giving, you want to follow this one who's done what you cannot do. His lordship and his grace entail recognizing the power of his will is preeminent over ours. Listen, you can be enthralled by the brilliance of Jesus. You can be intoxicated by the power of Jesus. You can be touched by the compassion of Jesus. But if in the end of the day, you are here this morning and you want to remain in charge, Jesus has news for you. You are not on his pathway to life. But the reverse is true. Jesus is calling you to that pathway. Jesus is saying, I want you to lay down every part of yourself. Come with everything, your innermost being, including your will, and lay it at my feet so I can know you. So I can know you. Don't hide any part from me. Lay it all there at my feet, and I will have fellowship with you, and you will spend eternity in my kingdom. Have you ever given Jesus the chance to know you? Jesus doesn't say, I don't, I don't, I don't see you on the list. Who, who are these people? Jesus says, I never knew you because you never laid yourself completely at my feet and said, here I am, Lord. You are my Lord. You are my Lord. Here's me, all of me. Do what you will. You are my Lord. 
if you're your own foundation this morning, there's a way in which you can say, I don't want to be my own foundation anymore. In just a minute, we're going to have a time to celebrate the Eucharist. Jesus called his followers to regularly remember the radical nature of his sacrifice. You see, Jesus calls us to the narrow road because Jesus already walked the narrow road. And it's when we get on the narrow road that Jesus is there waiting for us. And we get a picture of the narrow road he walked, which led to the cross every time we celebrate the Eucharist. So we're going to do that in just a minute. And if you would like to, in a fresh way, say, Lord Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to sup with you. You can have every part of my life. I'm holding nothing back. Then by all means, when you come forward and when someone says the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, I want you to say, praise the Lord. Amen. Yes. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you call us to follow you. Your road is narrow. We ask by your grace that we would lay aside those things which we cannot take. If you've identified something in our hearts, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would lay those things aside. Lord, may we not listen to those voices that would call us off your path, be they from around us or above us, even our own inner voice. But instead, may we forever rest alone on your finished work as we walk with you on the narrow but beautiful, joyful path of life. We pray in your name. Amen.